You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, as always, there's a silent B in his name, just like in Swimming Pool, Mr. Jeff oh, McLarge. Huge. Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, how you doing? So, this is October, or September, as I always like to call it. And yes. next weekend is Halloween. Not this weekend, but that doesn't stop me from watching every horror movie available like the other 51 weeks out of the year. <laughs> yes, it's uh, Halloween is a year-long holiday celebration for you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Here's a question for you. What was okay. your first horror movie? And I mean like real horror movie. I'm not talking like Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. I'm talking like like real horror movie. Something that scared you. Like, Ugh, I'm right. under the bed. Okay, so there's a couple ways I can sort of address this. Like the first one that I remember watching as a kid mm-hmm. with my mom was The Pit and the Pendulum with okay. Vincent Price yep. on Creature Double Feature. And that movie scared the jeebus out of me. Mm-hmm. And I've been af- like afraid of that whole pendulum sort of movie trope torture chamber thing ever since right and i was really young when i saw that i don't remember anything else about the movie mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure i was bored to death because it's a super talky hammer style horror film yeah those older um, horror movies tend to move at a very slow slow, slow pace yes, yeah it builds yeah. up tension and but it's yeah. not like jump scary you know and then like my mom liked monster movies and horror movies a lot she used to let me stay up as a little kid to watch kolchak the night stalker tv show which was a uh, darren mcgavin the, for those of you who don't know who that is that she's the dad on the movie a christmas story played oh, yeah. a reporter named Carl Kolchak, mm-hmm. who investigated all these sort of monsters and killers and stuff. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of supernatural stuff in it. So there was like vampires and witches. And a, there was a really scary one with a robot who had like digital numbers for eyes huh. and things and bats and lizard monsters and stuff. And it was a really cool show. It lasted like, I think, one season and then it was gone. But I always remember watching that. And then the first film that I really saw as a horror film, like by myself with popcorn, was to see the film Phantasm, which I watched when we first, first got cable TV. Uh, and I stayed up like on a Friday night by myself to watch that film. And it scared the absolute crap out of me. I've never actually seen that one. It's on my uh, it's on my checklist though. It's a it's a good one to watch. Yeah, I think my first was Halloween from 1978. Like my first real one. Although, like, part of me wants to say it was the first Friday the Thirteenth, but since that came out two years later, I'm gonna say it was it was Halloween. And I okay. remember being just terrified, like laying in my bed and looking at the closet because, god damn it, Michael Myers is in there. You know, I can. I mean, I'm, yes. in, I'm actually in the room that used to be my bedroom when I was a kid, and I'm looking mm-hmm. over at that closet, and I can still remember looking at that closet, thinking Michael Myers was in there. 
He's in there. He's going to get me. Yeah. And then, yep. you know, I went back and watched that movie. Like, I go long, long times without because I love so many horror movies. I, you know, you have to space them out. And you go back and you watch mm-hmm. them, you know, many, many years later. And that first Halloween, while still great, moves incredibly slow. Yes. I, I watched it and I was like, I can't believe I was so afraid of this movie. <laughs> Definitely is paced. It is. There's the, that one, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, even Friday the 13th. They're all paced so differently compared to what we see in films Right. Over the last 10 or 20 years, right? Right. They were able to do a lot of tension building and sort of slow storytelling and stuff in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we're watching films now that are like, how long was the that last Avengers movie? Like 39 hours and yeah, 15 minutes? Yeah, just short of. Yeah, it was like three hours right? and 20 minutes, right? Three hours and three hours and 20 minutes. And, and you walk out of that film and you're like, whew! Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. I, I think I need a nap. Right. You know, it's like going to the gym and run on the treadmill for three hours and 29 minutes. Yeah. There's a ton of tension in that movie, but it's it's the, it's the same. That tension is sort of built the same way in Halloween, which is like 92 minutes long. I mean, it, it, it gets away with it without the way that it doesn't have to keep hitting beats every one and a half minutes. With these like large trumpet blasts. Yeah. Right. Right. I remember because right. I worked with this theater group and there was a there was a group of friends that I made and there was a pretty good age difference between us. They knew that Friday the 13th had like Jason in it and they knew it was hokey, but they didn't realize how really good that first one is. So right. I was like, yeah, we should watch that. And like, oh, that's stupid. I was like, no, come over and watch it. And that first one. Like, you know, I remember whenever Jason pops out of the water, spoiler guys, Mm -hmm. but whenever Jason pops out of the water at the end of the movie, like, like several of the people in my room, like, jump. And I remember my father telling me when he went to see it in the theater, he jumped. It got him. It's a great moment. Right, right. You know what the scariest part of that movie is? First Friday the 13th? And this isn't even a joke. This is true. The scariest part of the movie is towards the end. There is a scene where a girl is making coffee. Everybody else is dead. She's the last girl. She doesn't know it. You know it because you've been watching the movie. But she's last girl. Everybody's dead. And she's making coffee for her boyfriend who's dead. It's such a tense scene because you know something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. It's like four minutes long. She makes coffee. Nothing happens and it's just brilliant. Make sure everybody wants coffee before you make a whole pot. I made a whole pot for nothing. (laughs) The body flies through the window. Do you want coffee? John never drinks a second cup of coffee at home. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's yeah. make a podcast. Uh, before we get started, I'm gonna have uh, uh, this week's trivia question for you. In Greek right. mythology, who is the first woman on on the in, uh, to be created? Who's the first woman in Greek mythology? First, the f- who is the first woman to be created yes. in Greek mythology? Ah. Well, I don't know, but I'm gonna well, find out. I bet later. Uh, the podcast has something to do with the answer. All right, I need another hand. That's all you got. Like who is you get nothing. Who is the first? Ah. All right. So this is the week beginning October the 19th. Hit it, CC. You're taking us uh, to 1914. I remember it well. The U.S. Post Office, first time ever, uses an automobile to collect and deliver mail. Ooh. So up until then, it was always either, you know, two feet or four feet. <laughs> and then after that, it was four wheels. I just picture like those old timey cars like you see in the cartoons that like just shake the fillings out of your teeth. And they always beep the horn for whatever reason. I'm going to guess it was probably like a Ford, probably a Ford Model T was the car that was being used because they were the ones that were the, I think, the least expensive at the time. It didn't have to be. They weren't like being hand built in a guy's garage like the thompson's right and that's the one you were talking about a couple of weeks ago with the, right the, the thompson flyer with the the race uh, from new york to paris the, the ride on lawnmower transmission oh <laughs> yes 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 the uh that's right 
Yeah, and, I, and I'm going to guess that that was probably the first vehicle, and it was probably in a city setting only because there were no real paved roads Ugh. between cities and in towns and stuff. So it was. I'm going to. I can't find which city it was, but it was probably like New York or Chicago or Boston or you know another another big place, Cincinnati perhaps. But a big city was the first one to have post delivered by car, which must have sucked for the postman who's like, I got to get out of this car, and get into this car, and get out of this car, get into this car. Well, it beats getting on and off you know, a horse. Yeah, I, I suppose, but I don't. I don't I wonder if the if the folks that were doing it were were sort of more often than not just going just walking. Right. You know, I still got to go up 125 flights of stairs in this building. Well, I mean, Yet, it's 1914. You know. I mean, the the, the you know, I'm going to say that the neighborhoods weren't as close together as they are now. Yeah, that's probably true too. Yes. Like yep. this neighborhood is uh is you know, get some age to it, but I think most of these houses were built in the 40s. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So yes. So I'm going to guess that that was the the world's first l really lucky post guy, mm -hmm. and I wonder I wonder if they took turns and used the car on different routes and stuff. Oh, just pushing each other out of the way and. <laughs> 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 no, I get the car this time. I want the car. You had it last time, stupid head. You don't even have roads on your route. You have dirt. <laughs> All right, October the twentieth, nineteen sixty-seven. The famous Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin film of Bigfoot Sasquatch walking by the one that you always see, where the guy, the the the, the guy in the suit, uh, is uh, is walking by and kind of like looks over his shoulder, kind of casually, like, "Hey, sup." And then just like saunders off, yeah, shambles off into the woods, yeah. Yeah, the famous uh, Bigfoot uh, thing. Uh, filmed at Bluff Creek. Now, if that doesn't send a signal to somebody, hmm. Bluff Creek, yeah. Yes, this is a film that's caused all kinds of controversy and effectively sort of created the, the field of cryptozoology. Mm -hmm. So I've seen probably a thousand different analyses of this film that say, well, it's clearly a dude in a gorilla costume to... This is obviously a monster from out in the woods that no one's ever seen before, and and all places in between. Um, I met a man who told me, as an authority, that it was a guy in a gorilla suit. And yep. how did he know? Because he was the you, guy that made the gorilla suit. Yep. I met him at a horror convention, and he pulled out the damn suit. Yep. I've seen an interview with a guy who was an an actor that had a gorilla suit in the. He used to do that in the like the fifties, the forties and fifties, right. and was friends with either Patterson or. Gimlin and they did it he had worked it out with one of the I can't remember which of the two but with one one of the two to to sort of practical joke his friend who was obsessed with the idea of Bigfoot right yeah it was a prank so they hired, yeah they, so they, yeah it was a prank so so but you'll still see people who, who are like doing that frame by frame analysis like look at how long the arms are look at how muscular the front is it's like that looks to me like a not quite a like a Spencer's gift quality <laughs> gorilla suit but it's a real good it's one, definitely yeah. a gorilla suit yeah. yeah and you know Bill Maher famously said this country is stupid and and he got in a lot of trouble and a lot of uh you know backlash for that but let's face it i mean this <laughs> this is just silliness here and i had an ex-girlfriend well i guess i still have an ex-girlfriend um, <laughs> i had this girlfriend that she was really big into cryptozoology and she loved bigfoot right. and all that stuff and i asked her i was like why are you so into this when you know it's crap you know, and I yeah. love it because it's crap because I think it's silly, you know, that people actually believe in this stuff. But yeah, but yeah, she was yeah. into it on a different level. And she said something. Sometimes some people say something to you and it just makes everything make sense. And that was one of her sentences. She said, I don't want to live in a world where this isn't possible. Okay. 
that's fine. Well, you're fortunate. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll take you on that one. Yeah. There was a time when this, this couple of year period uh, following thousands of years where we had never, we as humans, I say the royal we, us as the, mm-hmm. you know, the species of human beings, had never seen a giant squid in the wild. But we they'd washed up on shore dead. They'd, we'd found them in, you know, half digested in whales or pieces of them after fighting with whales, right? So we knew that they existed, but we just didn't have any information about what they were like in the wild, where they lived, how they swam, all this stuff. And then like, I guess about 10 years ago, this, this doctor got a picture of one Yep, uh, off the coast of Japan, I right? That. Yeah. The reason why we couldn't well, get to them is because they're so deep. They live in right. a very, very, like, several fathoms uh, down there. Right. So, like, up until that point, they were kind of like cryptids, I guess you could say, because we had evidence that they were there, but we'd never seen one in the in the wild before. Right. And then a couple of years later, I, th- I don't know if it was the Discovery Channel or National Geographic funded an expedition to try and get a video of them as opposed to just a still image. Right. And they got that same doctor, this woman who was the one who actually got the first video of the giant squid and then this other doctor who's i don't know why they brought him i mean he was a he's a biologist and he's a he's a specialist in squid he's very good looking. but his like he's very good looking the, the the japanese doctor the guy that got the original pictures he said i'll hang some bait on a on a hook which is what i did to get the pictures because mm-hmm. i this is where i have reports that they are and i'll put this bait down and we'll wait and see what happens so that's cool the doctor ed something says these animals can communicate using bioluminescence so i'm going to make a bioluminescent ball that blinks in a certain way and has these different patterns that squids use in other parts of the ocean and i'll throw that down there do you know how bad i was waiting for you to say that they communicated telepathically like snails <laughs> uh, so i was so please, close please let him say that <laughs> so then the last guy his plan was like I took a bunch of squids and I ground them all up and I'm just going to pump them out into the ocean to see that that should bring them in because they're going to smell their own kind. And I started to think to myself, like, at what point do we think that animals are so different from us, cryptids or not, that we would like, if I was trying to attract someone to come and see me, (laughs) I wouldn't grind up a whole bunch of people meat. And just spray it around and hope that that would bring the ladies, you know, coming over to, to check me. Yeah. I'm going to get lucky tonight. Woo! I've got my viscera. <laughs> Look at that. I'm ready. But anyway, to bring us back to the Patterson-Gimlin footage, right? So in the age of in the age of cell phone cameras and, and super high-def camera traps that can stay out for months at a time and shoot a million pictures and upload them to a satellite. Yeah. And having those things for like the last 10 years, we have, we still have, we're still going back to this friggin' Patterson-Gimlin footage right. and analyzing that because... There's no such thing as yeah, Bigfoot. 53, years, 53 year footage, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. let's move on to the next segment, which is the 21st. Right. Hit it. Okay, October 21st, 1991. Yep. Much closer to now than our last two pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, former governor of California, Jerry Brown, announces his run for the U.S. presidency. Now, this sounds like super duper boring effluvium or trivia, right? But it was interesting because Brown was the first candidate to really reach out for the youth vote through huh. channels that didn't exist before. So he he became really popular through the MTV, at the time we were called the MTV generation, mm-hmm. with his claim that he wouldn't take any corporate money. He had an 800 number that you could call and donate $5 right. through. And he raised all of his campaign funds through these tiny donations from regular people to the point where his 800 number was painted by the cat 
cast of the real world i think it was the real world 2 on the back of like their living room wall and that was there for the entire season real world 2 was in california right yeah he really ended up making a good run at the nomination he beat a lot of the other primary candidates until it was just him and bill clinton at the time and then he sort of did make it through the convention but sort of built this model where if you went outside of the traditional funding channels that clinton especially was was very good at leveraging you were able to really pick up steam and speak that sort of populist message and talk directly to the voting base which is kind of what he did so that sort of built the model that bernie sanders used and some other politicians as well like john edwards and some others that sort of helped sort of change the way that that uh politicians ran at least their primary candidate primary campaigns i don't know a lot about jerry brown other than he is mentioned in the dead kennedy song california uber alleys yes that is that's a song literally yes. about him i am governor uh, jerry hilarious hilariously <laughs> and <laughs> which smiles and never frowns. which uh which confused yes. me because jello biafra is such a liberal uh, jerry brown is very liberal and I'm like, what? Yes. What is Biafra's problem with Jerry Brown? You figure he would like Jerry it, Brown. It wasn't. It wasn't really his politics. I think that he had a problem with more than it was the sort of punk versus hippie. Right. Yeah. Because Jerry Brown was a hippie. Yeah. And, and and Jello hated hippies. Right. If you like, if you listen to this song, it's all playing with a lot of hippie stereotypes. Yeah. You know, my aura smiles and never frowns. Soon it will be president. Yeah. Uh, your kids will meditate in schools. Yes. There's a lot of stuff in there that's that's just sort of picking at the the hippie part of his personality. Brown went on to become governor again of California not too long ago. Yeah, he was like, I'm back. Uh, yeah. And came back and ran again. He had a, a long-term relationship with like Linda Ronstadt. He, this, guy's, this guy's got a really weird history. Interesting dude all the way around. And badass Dead Kennedy song. Right, badass Dead Kennedy song. All right, so October 22nd, 1964, uh-huh. EMI rejects the audition for a band called The High Numbers. The who? Yes. The High Numbers? I don't understand. Yeah. Who? The, the High Numbers. The who? Yes, the hi, yes, the who. The who is The High Numbers. The High Numbers is The oh, who. Oh, oh, oh. Hey. Before they were known as The Who, The Who were known as The High Numbers. High Numbers, yeah. Uh, um, I wonder I wonder what I wonder how they auditioned. I wonder what they played. What? Like <laughs> Famously, they got yeah, rejected by EMI. And they later went on to become one of the absolute biggest bands in rock and roll history. I wonder what they played at their audition. Like their first record, The Who Sings My Generation, is really bluesy, especially compared to, it's the most bluesy of all of their albums. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's the most, most sort of of its time in 64 or so, 64, 65, where it sounds, they kind of sound like the animals a little bit. They sort of sound like the Rolling Stones in their early, early years a little bit. And they have a lot of that white English blues, rhythm and blues style. It's kind of like what you did at that time. If you look at right. the Who's first album, Pink Floyd's first album, and like what the Beatles were recording at that time, it's it's right. all kind of cut from the same cloth. Yes, I mean yep. they they are you know all dramatically different, but it's all kind of cut from the same cloth. And if you look at the Who's like first three, yeah, three albums, fidelity wise, they they sound very different. But after Tommy, mm-hmm. like starting with Quadrophenia. The, the sound quality just like expanded exponentially. I don't know what they did, but well, they I did think, it. I, well, I think that, I mean, I think that has to do with like where they recorded and how they recorded and the technology that, that they embraced mm-hmm. too. I mean, everything that was recorded, like the same kind of guys were the engineers on a lot of those first records for those bands that Shell Tommy and a couple of other people. Like Shell Tommy produced at least three of the cuts on the first Who record. Uh, one of them was Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere. That's a Shell Tommy. 
I think My Generation is a Shell Tommy. So he also produced stuff for the Rolling Stones, for the Kinks, for the for the Animals, and and some other bands as well. And was really had a very distinctive style. And once they sort of stopped, they broke away from that. That changed. Is this guy what they have? You know? What they call like a tin ear? It's like, hey, you know what this? Know what this song needs more treble. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. He's like you got to think of him like you think of like Phil Spector. Like <laughs> you can spot a Phil Spector record from from anywhere because you can hear the way that he tends to work his stuff. The wall of sound. So right. Shell Tommy's kind of the same way. The wall, yeah, the wall of sound. It's like like we need five thousand didgeridoos. It's you like know? like you know whenever you put a uh, like a record player on but you don't have the speakers on, and all you hear is like the the needle bouncing up and down. Yes. Shell Tommy uh, engineered records. They don't sound any different than that. They just sound louder. That's exactly. It's just so tinny those records from back it's, then. I don't know if he did it in in mono only, but I know like I've heard the first two record I think in stereo and in mono, but I don't know if it was released in mono. I, again, I was wasn't on Earth yet. Oh, well, maybe when was, that record came out. Maybe it was kind of like um, like the, the Beatles when they recorded Sasha Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. They recorded it in mono. And then the you know the, the the record company comes down. They're like, you know what? These stereo records are really selling well. We're gonna have to make this album in stereo. And right. they're like, well, if you think we're re-recording the whole thing in stereo, you're mad. So what they did right. was they just split everything down the middle, which is why if you listen to that record, all the drums and guitar are in one speaker. And then the bass and the and vocals are all in the other speaker. That was like, all right, stereo now. Yeah, that's like um the Are You Experience record for for Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. is like that too. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. well, there you that go. That was their answer, yeah. It's 1964. Hey, there's another fun one for this date, uh, October 22nd, following up on some of our, our, our past shows. Paul McCartney <laughs> denies that he's dead. Paul McCartney did not, <laughs> not die on this not day. not dead. What year? I'm still here. What year was that? Look, 1969. 1969, Paul McCartney is not dead. Happy not death day, Paul McCartney. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dead. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, whatever you say, no. Billy Shears. <laughs> Billy Shears. Oh no, Billy Shears. <laughs> all right, all right. Next up. All right, October twenty third, two thousand one. Uh, Apple, the technology company that sort of sets the pace for all other technology companies uh, lately, uh, introduces the iPod and effectively changes the way that everyone listens to music. You wouldn't think that this would be a revolutionary moment in consumer product stuff, but it absolutely is. Oh yeah, and the first uh, the first ones were like carrying around a brick in your pocket. They were very heavy. And they only, uh, I think what they have, four gigs, if that? Uh, I think so, yes. The Apple iPod was absolutely a product of its time, too. A testament to Steve Jobs' business acumen. He watched Napster and the idea of free music, you know, that you could go and just get from somebody right. on the internet through this software. And then realized that if people, if the cost of ownership was low enough, people would pay it. Yep. And if you could guarantee the quality of it, people would pay it. And if you could make it so it was secure artists would accept it record companies would accept it because they'd be able to get a sustained amount of income so he spent a long time before the ipod hardware was even developed fully going to see record companies and saying look if i put this thing together and we sell your record for this much money and you get this much money from it we can make a lot of money the two of us and he got pushed back because i mean do you remember how much cds cost in like 2000 uh yeah they're like $14? Yeah, 15 16 bucks, yeah. right? For 8 to eight to 12 songs. Or, you know, like if you bought Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins, there's seven good songs and 25 bad songs. <laughs> or uh, Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, which you can make right. half of one good album out of. <laughs> I guess half of one good album, yeah. exactly. Job said people won't pay more than $10 for a record. They're not going to pay more than $10. And they're not going to pay more than $0.99 cents for a single. 
and we'll make every single individually purchasable and we'll make every album purchasable and we'll set the price like this. And he knew it was going to probably wipe out the idea of that CD business. It killed all the record stores in two years, three years. Yep. I was thinking, I was giving this thought the other day because we had did the notes and then now we're doing the show. You know, I I had said that I had bought that record player and I have this like stack of 45s from the uh, 70s and 80s downstairs. I remember paying, I think the going price in that time, we'll say 1982, right? A going price for a a 45 single was like $1.50, right? It was $1.50 and then like $8 for a full album, right? So now. One song is 99 cents, you know, 40 years later, almost 40 years later, right. and the price hasn't really gone up all that much. I mean, you get a 45, right. you had two songs, now you get one song for a dollar. It's it's like going back to the first uh, thing that we had about the post office, right? Yeah. What's right. the what's the cost of an infinity stone? Infinity stone. Uh, what's the what's I don't the cost? Uh, they're probably expensive. <laughs> I, I'm gonna guess that you need infinite amount of money to buy one. Uh, what's the what's the cost of a forever stamp? It's like. 55 cents now or something like that, right? So just for, think about... For a, a, post, a postage stamp is, is like 90 cents. Is it yeah. that much? Okay. But still, yeah. think about this. For 90 cents, some dude will come to your house, pick something up, and then deliver it anywhere in the country for 90 cents. Right. Yep. You know? That's kind of a bargain if you ask me. Right. So, the, right, yeah. Right. So, like, the 99 cents for a song, that's... Uh, that, that, that doesn't kill me. It doesn't break my, my, my bank account. No, it doesn't. It doesn't kill me too. And I mean, I don't know if there were some competitors to the iPod that had come out right the around Zune. the same time, maybe even a little bit before. The Zune came after, but there were some other like hard drive based music players that could play MP3s or WA, WMVs or F FLAC, FLAC, my son's favorite yep. format, lossless FLAC. You could drag songs onto. I don't know if you could create playlists. You didn't have access to a store. It was only for music that was on you directly on your PC. If you wanted to get more music, you had to go get it at like at LimeWire or or whatever Napster had turned into or Rhapsody or some other places, right? Like there were all of these other things that came after Napster. LimeWire is like, no, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Yep. LimeWire was like the red light district. of <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Definitely yeah. was. And you, you never what? knew like, oh my God, look, they've got the, the new Ice-T song and it's spelled out I-C-E-E-T-E-A, yeah. all caps. This is the brand new track number one from his album, and then the why title. Why is it only five K? Because someone just uploaded it, and it's really a terrifying. Vi- yeah, why is it only five K? And it's got an EXE on that the seems, end of it. That seems unusual. That seems unusual. Oh, I wonder what EXE means. It must mean it's extra good. <laughs> so, but I mean, the I- Apple and the iPod and the iTunes uh, software and the iTunes Store took that all out, all stuff away. They managed mm-hmm. all of it, and the price of entry was purchasing an iPod, and that was it. You know, I still have one. I have a fourth generation. My son just bought a fourth generation one and replaced the storage in it with solid state storage and still uses one. They're, they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. But I mean, ultimately what it came down to is that that change in how we listen to music wasn't that we use like a different part of our body. The headphones still went in your ears, right? As far as I know. But it was that you could, you, you had an, you had an unlimited amount of music that you could carry with you. Right. theoretically you could carry your entire record collection with you everywhere you go and there were so many peripherals that came out in the year after you could just drop your ipod into a speaker or a, like a clock radio or right. whatever every single re- cd that you ripped and every single song that you bought it's all there you can pick anything that you want to listen to you've got it all all the time amazing yep. amazing device and those uh, first ones was like i said they were like carrying a brick in your pocket and they still use like the, um, the hard drives you know, with the motors and stuff like yep. that, the centrifugal force made you lose your balance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you could use it as a gyroscope if you were skateboarding. <laughs> All right. So let's get on to October the 24th. 
yes. your friend and mine, Harry Houdini, uh, gave his last performance at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan. It was 1926. Yep. Several days earlier, uh, he was in Montreal. And yep. he had this like bar bet that he used to do that he said that he could take a punch in the stomach from anybody. And then before he right. had a chance to tighten up his stomach muscles, he some guy sucker punched him. Like, yeah, that, that guy was Jay Gordon Whitehead, the noted yeah. jerk. <laughs> noted, yeah, I can see the, the headlines. Noted yeah. jerk, Jay Gordon noted Whitehead. Jerk. Well, he's named after a pimple, so I mean, how good, you know. Right, he, yes. Didn't have a lot yes. going for him. Well, the, the J and Jay Gordon was yeah. for jerk Gordon yep. Whitehead. And uh, it ended up, you know, messing up Harry Houdini's appendix, and he gave his last performance on the 24th. He ended up dying a few nights later on Halloween from mm-hmm. gangrene, I believe, because the, the you know he had gotten infected and stuff like that. The the yep. place where Mr. Whitehead, Mr. Shithead, if you ask me, did his deed uh, is in Montreal. It is on St. Catherine Street, which is where I was staying when I was in Montreal uh, last last spring. Oh. Yeah, and I actually stood right in front of the the building where that happened. It's a it's actually a, a Best Buy now. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I got to stand right there where it happened. You sh- you know, next time you're there, you should go there and cosplay as Harry Houdini and just invite people to punch <laughs> you in the stomach and see what happens. Yeah, stand there with the, the shackles, like, completely naked. And the- right, right. Yeah, right. No, the, in a straight jacket in front of Sock the Best the Buy. <laughs> you know, like, trying to, trying to get out of handcuffs, you know. Come on, oh, give me a worst. Whenever I was in Canada, I, I was taught something really interesting. In America, most of our swear words have something to do with either excrement or sex. You know, those are all of our swear it's words. True. Those are the, the best, best kind of now, swear words. Now, in, uh, in Canada, all of their swear words are sacrilegious in nature. So here's me. Right. I'm going to be standing naked in front of Best Buy with handcuffs, and somebody's going to see me and go, Tabernacle! That, that's your big one. And then you can yell back, excrement! <laughs> and they'll know you're an that's American. Their, uh, that's their big F word over there is tabernacle. Yeah. Tabernacle and uh, yeah. what's the other one? This poutine yeah. tastes bad. I think, it's, I think tabernacle was the big one no. too. Yeah, yeah, that's the only one I know. And it usually sounds like tabernacle. Yeah, they, yeah but every, yeah, all of their uh, all their swears are all blaspheme in nature. I was like, oh, rock on. Yes. All right, so let's get on to the 25th. October 25th. 1978, following back onto our discussion from earlier, 1978, Halloween, directed by John Carpenter, starring Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut, is released. Actually, released to surprisingly wide acclaim. I remember that film being really well-reviewed by Siskel and Ebert on At The Movies, or Sneak Previews, I think the show was called then. Interesting, a lot of interesting things about that movie. For starters, we, as I said at the top of the show kind of associate horror movies with Halloween. But that was never really right. a thing before Halloween, the movie. Right. Your know, horror movies were one thing, Halloween was another thing, and after 1978 is when we started like lumping the two together and it's because of that movie. Yep. Yes. Well, it's it still goes on. I mean, up until they sort of stopped doing the franchise uh, tell, telling tales out of school for for Bill and I here, we would get together every Halloween weekend to see whatever the newest Saw film was. Yes. Whether it was, I think, I think the last we saw was, was it Saw Five? Uh, no, we saw. Uh, <laughs> no, there was Jigsaw. Yeah. There was one that was like, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. So yeah. that was uh, yes. like seven. Seven? No, that was okay. eight. Actually, that was the eighth movie in the franchise. Yeah. Eight. Okay. Right. So, so we saw I think four, four or five yeah. of them. 
Uh, I think Saw 4 was the first one I saw with you yes. in the cinema. So we saw him every every Halloween. And it's, you know, it's still fun. It's still a good Halloween outing. A couple of uh, interesting trivia bits about the movie Halloween. One, it takes place in a fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois. But it was filmed in Pasadena, California, which is why the curious event of all the cars having California license plates in the middle of, uh, <laughs> of Illinois. Oh, I know. I never noticed yep. that. I'll have to watch for that next time. Huh. Uh, I uh, uh, I had uh, I found the house in in Pasadena where uh, Michael Myers is standing behind the bushes in that famous scene, uh-huh. and I have yep. my picture taken of me standing next to the bushes because you kind of have to. Uh, you know what you should do? You should cosplay Michael Myers and invite people to punch you in the stomach in front of that house. You know, eventually, <laughs> you Tabernacle. <laughs> Eventually, one of our <laughs> listeners is going to tell you that it's cosplay, but whatever. Oh, all right. Whoa, sorry. Yeah, cos- what am I saying? Cosplay? Yeah, costume play. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. um... <laughs> cosplay, Tabernacle! Cosplay. The high numbers, the who. Yeah. I don't know. So, um... Tabernacle! Uh, another interesting bit is the actor that plays Michael Myers during the movie, the one that's, like, walking around in the credits, he's yes. called The Shape. Uh, that is yep. a different actor than the actor who you see at the end of the movie. At the end of the movie, uh, whenever he's attacking Jamie Lee Curtis and his mask comes up and reveals his face, uh, that actor, his name is Tony Marin, and he is the brother of Aaron Marin, who was Joni on Happy Days. I think some of our listeners are going to write in and tell you it's it's Aaron Moran. Uh, But anyway, that's it. That's... (laughs) That's yeah. So Tony Moran. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yep. So okay. So Aaron Moran's brother, Tony Moran. Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. That's neat. There's so many weird connections that that I'm I'm learning now as as we as we do this program together. It makes it extra yep. fun. He's a super super nice guy. I've met him a number of times. Uh, the oh, funniest cool. thing is like he'll sign and you know give you an autograph picture. He'll sign it and it'll be like twenty dollars for an autograph picture, and then he'll let you know that he got paid twenty five dollars for filming that scene. <laughs> Good work if you. Yeah, can get he it. had no nobody had any idea that movie was going to turn around the kind of coin that it did, and uh, and right. did it ever. So yeah, he got paid twenty five a one time fee of twenty five dollars, and then John Carpenter just raked it in after that. That's that's terrible. It's the sort of thing that makes you want to go on a murder spree. <laughs> that's why um, uh, Michael Caine. You'll notice that Michael Caine will do anything, and every every, yes. every contract he always does for scale. Because yep. it doesn't matter. One of these movies is going to make big bank, and he's going to take the. He's going to take it home. Well, th- he has a great quote. Like he was in that horrifyingly stupid movie Jaws: The Revenge. Yes, the best. I, as as I call it, the best of all the Jaws sequels, because mm-hmm. uh, it's the one I've watched the most and it's the funniest. But his uh, his his comment on that when asked why he didn't go pick up his Academy Award at the Academy Awards ceremony for Hannah and Her Sisters, mm-hmm. she won. For, I think best supporting actor. He was filming additional scenes for Jaws: The Revenge, and he said, he said he couldn't because he was filming the thing. And he and he says, people tell me that the film is awful. I've never seen it, <laughs> but I have seen the house that it paid for, and it is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fantastic approach to uh, to life and work. All right, so. let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. Famous birthdays, and, yay! And I will start this one. Uh, okay. October 19th, 1966, John Favreau. Uh, Who? Yeah, the, the high numbers. Um, <laughs> John Favreau is a actor and director. You would know him as Happy Hogan from the Iron Man movies. 
Yes. And he was also in Swingers, and he was yeah. also he was on Friends too. He was like uh, I think he was Monica's boyfriend. He was he, he was like a shoot fighter or something like that. John Favreau. Mm-hmm. I have seen him ripped to shreds and muscular, and I've also seen him super fat. That guy has yes. lived I remember several lives. The, the first time I ever saw him was in Rudy. He was a supporting character in Rudy mm-hmm. with, uh, I don't know, the kid that played the Hobbit. I can't remember what his name right. is. But he was he was Rudy's roommate yes. in that movie, which was really good. And that's the first time I remember seeing him. And then he was in uh, Iron Man. He, di- he directed a couple of... Uh, didn't he direct a couple of the Marvel films, too? He directed the first two Iron Man movies. Oh, see that? Okay, so not only was he in it, he was he was in it. Yep. He was he was in it up to his eyebrows. And he also did uh, the Mandalorian series on Disney+, Plus, which yep. is very good. All right, next. October 20th, 1882. Bella Lugosi. He's dead. And Austrian, he is dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled. Red velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugosi's dead. Uh, Bella Lugosi, uh, most famous for playing Dracula in Todd Browning's Dracula from 1931, around, I believe, it's a, it's 31 a, or 35, around somewhere around there. Thirty, I think it's 31. It's probably 33. Uh, <laughs> the definitive sort of American version of Dracula, the one that set the model that all of the Hammer films would kind of follow, except for a couple, and that other films would also try and emulate. So... The first speaking Dracula, uh, and the first one who presented the accent that Dracula would be associated with, and it, he built his whole career for good and bad, playing on that type of character and sort of gangsters and sort of thing. But a lot of his work at the height of his career was was related to being either Dracula or associated with the Universal monster films. He was in that group that made. The golden, golden age of the first horror, real horror films that had mass appeal. Yeah. That's Bella. And awesome name. Let's just uh, throw that out awesome there, too. Name. Yeah. Awesome name. All right. Moving on so. to October the 21st. Uh, I, I, I got to throw oh, in. I got to throw in this one just because, like, this literally two people that I know that are going to geek out over this, and they're both hosting this podcast. October 21st, 1957 is the birthday of Julian Cope, the other JC, yes. as I like to call him, my favorite right. weirdo. But uh, hi, hi, Julian. Happy birthday. And also 1956, October 21st, 1956 is the birthday of everybody's favorite princess, Carrie Fisher. Yes. I, I'm sad I never got to meet her. I, I was supposed uh, she was supposed to be at a convention, but uh, it never it never transpired. Yeah, how can you not love her? I mean, she's I, I you can say she was crazy, but she embraced it. She wore it on her sleeve. She was a, a big advocate for for mental for mental health and mental health awareness. It's true. And it's true. And uh, she has this uh, book that I I have the audio book of it. Oh, the name of it will lose me at the moment. But it was heartbreaking to read because it was all about her going for uh, ECT. Yeah. Uh, okay. Electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah. That's ECT, yeah. right? Uh, what we used to call electric shock therapy, but they, they changed the name right. to make it sound a little more palatable. Right. It was sad, but like I said, she's she was hilarious. She wore her mental illness on her sleeve for, you know, don't be ashamed of it, you know? Just right. a really, yeah. really cool woman. And... Whenever you watch the the Star Wars sequels and you see um, her daughter, there's some angles you catch. You're like, oh my god, she looks just like her mom so much. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like I always thought that that she looked just like her mother. Her mother is Debbie yes. Reynolds. 
So, like, when Debbie, again, when the camera's looking at De- Debbie Reynolds in a particular way, it's like, holy mackerel, that looks just like Carrie Fisher, or vice yeah, versa. So. Strong genetics. Definitely, that's strong genes, yep. yeah. Strong, strong All genes. right, moving on to the 22nd. Who do you got? October 22nd, 1952, Hollywood's uh, favorite weird guy, jazz player, strange role taker, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, probably best known for listeners of this podcast were playing Dr. Ian Malcolm in the Jurassic Park films, but he was also Seth Brundle in The Fly, a fantastically good remake of a good horror movie from the 1960s or 1950s. He is delightfully Um, weird. He is definitely a strange guy. He is delightfully weird. Uh, He did a photo op at the last Comic-Con that we were able to go to, and I know so many people mm-hmm. that like you know had their picture taken with them, and it's always the same thing. Him just like almost smothering the person in a hug. It's at yeah. a point where the like good thing Goldblum's thin, because if he was a big dude, right. whoever he was taking the picture with would just disappear. The first thing I remember him in is Transylvania Six Five Thousand, and uh, I still yes. use the telephone from Transylvania Six Five Thousand as my ringtone <laughs> on my cell phone. <laughs> yep. yep. Yes, you yep. do. I can vouch for that. Right, moving yes. on to the 23rd, 1959. Oh, this guy's so weird. It's his name, Weird Al Yankovic. Talk about a dude who is able to manage to make a career that has 40, 30, 40 years of momentum yeah, 40. and doesn't show any signs of slowing down, has an incredibly uh, loyal fan base, and still puts out really good music. He's amazing. Like, Think about how it's evolved, too. It started off, if you listen to Another One Rides the Bus, which was like an accordion and like somebody... And a guy banging on a suitcase. Right, in yeah. a bathroom stall, uh, yep. you know, for the ambience. And then you listen to like some of like the the more recent work, even not even that much recent. You listen to something from the 90s, like Hardware Store, which has just got right. so many layers and beautiful harmonies. And it's crazy the, um, the level that guy works on. I've known people that have met him and they said he's super personable. He's not like a, a, a jerk or anything like that. Right, a lot right. of people that are like funny aren't funny when you meet them. But they said that, right. that Weird Al was just like, he is, he is who he is. Yep. Yeah. Funny guy. Has gone on to direct videos now and he, I think he does a little production stuff and as well as having his own music career and he still tours. Does it all. Dude's yep. amazing. October 24th, 1893. Now, this name probably won't mean anything to you guys, but Miriam C. Cooper, who was a film director and producer, and you'll know his work because he directed the original 1933 King Kong. Uh, he also directed Son of Son of Kong, which came out in 1934-35. Um, he and a guy named Ernie Shodzak were partners up until they made Kong would go on these like insane safari adventure filmmaking trips and capture things like the African Veld and the Inuit in Alaska, you know, penguins in in uh, the the tip of South America and film people walking around in the jungle and all of this super immersive, weird sort of Mondo style nature footage. They wanted to do a film film and because they were famous because their their like weird nature films were running before Hollywood movies in the th- 20s and 30s they were able to get a deal with i think rko and let them take their experience and turn it into what became the sort of very first really amazing blockbuster giant monster film of king kong which is why like all of the stuff on skull island is so it seems so realistic again at the time less so now even now Uh, i mean it it looks way better than a a movie from 1933 should agreed you know back to our discussion we had earlier about pacing that film is paced like 
the Avengers. Yes. King Kong is paced like a modern, modern, modern action yeah. movie. It's a that movie starts. It doesn't slow down until it until a gorilla hits right. the ground. Like it literally just beat after beat after beat after. You never spend more than ten minutes in any given place without something exciting happening. All right, and uh, wrapping it up on the twenty fifth October twenty fifth nineteen eighty four. Uh, Katy Perry, Bill's favorite artist, one of my favorites, absolutely. Um, <laughs> her, her her lyrics just speak to me. Um, when she told me that she kissed a girl and she liked it, I believe it. it <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. Yes. Yeah. I uh, I famously am not a pop music person, but whatever. She did what she did. She was married to Russell Crowe. She's an attractive young lady, and her bits on. Um, she wasn't married to Russell Crowe. Not Russell Crowe. She was married to Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Safe. The Who. High numbers. <laughs> Connections. Yeah. 1914 post office. Russell Brand, yes. Um, Russell Brand, yes. And whenever she was on Saturday Night Live, I will give her credit. And you can kind of see this even in her music videos with her facial expressions. Mm -hmm. She has great comedic timing. She does. I'll give her that. So happy birthday, Katy Perry. I I like your pop music of the two. Say hi to Russell Crowe for me. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Who? But that brings us to... The worst song ever. All right, what do we have? Who is contender this week for the worst song ever? The worst song ever, uh, 1977. Number one, number one this week, and it began. It started a ten-week run at number one last week, but it was it's number one. Yes, Yeesh is right. It is number one in 1977. A song filled with so much saccharin that two verses in, the lab rats started to die. (laughs) The song is You Light Up My Life, uh, not written by, but performed by Spawn of Pat Boone, uh, Debbie Boone, who was young. Yeah, she was a young lady. Very nice voice. Definitely made the song more religious than it was before. Yeah, well, when it was used as the title song of a TV movie or something. Yeah, it was a movie. um, Was it a movie? movie? It was a movie movie called You You Light Up My Life. And uh, it starred uh, the who? It's not the who. <laughs> the, the the song itself was written by a guy named Joseph Brooks, and it was re- uh. originally recorded by oh boy, this this girl has a very Russian name. It, it looks like somebody dropped a Scrabble bag on the ground. It's <laughs> probably probably pronounces it. It sounds like somebody crinkling up aluminum foil. Yes, uh, it's Casey yeah. Sizik. Sizik, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say Sizik. Um, I don't know. I can't see the letters, so I'll take your word for uh, it. Uh, it, it was a you know the song and a film of the same name. You led it my life, and it was lip synced mm-hmm. in the movie by Dee Dee Khan, who you, oh. yeah, who you would or you or your listeners would uh, you and the listeners would know as Frenchie from the movie Grease. From Grease and yep. Grease Two, um, and I I think she was also on Shining Time Station. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. So going back until so, the little kid. Yep. Me. So it was a uh, it was a romance movie, and Didi Khan sings the song to her love interest in the movie, uh, and then uh. Debbie Boo was like, "Hey, that's a really pretty song. I think I'm going to cover it." Except now it's about Jesus. If the if the love in, I've never seen the film, but I'm going to wonder if the love interest that she had in that was like a six inch tall, either Ringo Starr or George Carlin. <laughs> I <laughs> I don't have that answer. <laughs> oh, because well, those were the conductors on Shining Time oh, Station. Oh, right. So. Okay. I, I... <laughs> oh, connections, Bill. Connections. Who? High numbers. 
the high numbers. Okay. Uh, another famous cover version was by yes, your, so this... your friend of mine, Whitney Houston. We should let's play a clip. Yes, brace yourselves. And you. I, this um, is nothing it, I want to listen to ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess it's. I, I mean, it's seventy-seven, so I guess it's different than disco. Right. It's that weird ballady thing. It's, it's not dance song. It's something that you could, you know, you're having the picture yourself behind the wheel of a, of a large automobile station wagon. A very large automobile, country squire station yeah. wagon. Gas is at eighty-nine cents a gallon now. You know, you've just smoked your last pack of Terrytons and you're on your way to the store to get another carton before somebody your husband gets home and all you want to do is like just eat some eat some mill towns and go to bed but tv dinners have to be made and the kids were up all night watching the the atari tv games and there on the radio comes debbie boone and and your whole life is better because you can croon along with her at maximum volume yeah i you know i don't know i can't imagine that that would fix anything you know, but we, you know that's how i how I we kind of like covered this uh, before the problem with 1970s music is that you know pop music uh, or radio music or whatever now or YouTube music whatever yeah. popular music now the demographic is generally 14 to 20 year old girls you know that's that's yes. your yeah, that's your target demographic in the 70s it seemed to be like 35 to 45 uh, housewives was it seemed to be the yeah, demographic it, and that's yep that seems to be about that's that seems like it and that is seems too. like what they and were shooting with this here, is where yeah. the dreaded this is where the dreaded you know the category of adult contemporary where there was a big crossover from adult contemporary into pop music just about every week okay, you want to hear what you know? hell is like okay juxtapose the 90s with the 70s okay now Instead of every girl who thinks they can sing getting up at karaoke and singing Four Non Blondes, What's Up, by the way, that'll be covered sometime soon. Now they're all getting up and singing You Light Up My Life. Yes. Um, nah, yep. we're good. I don't have to imagine yep. that. <laughs> Let's that's, forget about that's it. Hell. That, so, that's anyway, a bowl of Funyuns. Ten weeks on the charge for yeah. this song. So. Yeah, two and a half months of Ugh. <laughs> yeah, saccharine is like strong. I said. I mean, the FDA I never it. want to hear this song again. And people were just like going out and buying it in droves. They couldn't get enough of it. Well, that's that's nineteen seventy seven for you. Let's go to the trivia question, there, Bill. All, All right. right. So the trivia question was: Who in Greek mythology was the first woman in creation? The high numbers. <laughs> And I said it has something to do with the podcast, but that was such a red herring. The first woman was Pandora. Oh. And that is one uh, outlet that I haven't been able to get Twibbly on. So if you're listening to Pandora and looking for Twibbly, keep looking because we're not there. Um, <laughs> uh, now That's why it ties to the yes. podcast. I, I got it. Uh, so Pandora in Greek mythology is the same story as Eve from Adam and Eve. And Eve was the first female in the, in the Bible where Eve was said, don't eat that fruit. And she went and ate the fruit. Pandora was said, 
don't open that box. And she opened up the box and both respective females uh, screwed up everything for everybody. <laughs> they're they're uh, uh, basically they're the same story. Huh. So Pandora is the first female uh, in creation in Greek mythology. I get it. I'm there. You light up my life. <laughs> All right. That's going to wrap it up. For <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for this week of Twibbly. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Right. We will see you hey. next week. All righty. All right. Bye, everybody. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibbly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week. And it'll probably be better. <laughs>